you know, Magnet South on one side, Zach and, and, and Matthew, and then, you know, the polling family on the other side, sandwiched between them, you know, in this Advent, Christmas, ugly sweater um, <laughs> series. You got to do something. You got to do something real magical. So, we got the thing. This is tight. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to uh, thank you to Ruth Faint for this. So wanted to give a uh, dramatic reading uh, for you before we started. Uh, connected to the clip. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There's just one thing I need. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I I just want you for my own, more than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. All I want for Christmas is you. I don't need to hang my stockings there upon the fireplace. Santa Claus won't make me happy with a toy on Christmas Day. I I won't ask for much this Christmas. I won't even wish for snow. I'm just going to keep on waiting underneath the mistletoe. I won't even make a list and send it to the North Pole for St. Nick. I won't even stay awake to hear those magic reindeer click. Because I just want you here tonight holding me so tight. What more can I do, baby? All I want for Christmas is you. You, baby. Oh, all the lights are shining so brightly everywhere. This is in your hymnals. All the sound of children's laughter fills the air and... Everyone is singing. I hear those sleigh bells ringing. Santa, won't you bring me the one I really need? Won't you please be my baby to me? I don't want a lot for Christmas. This is all I'm asking for. I just want to see my baby standing right outside my door. Oh, I just want you for my own more than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. Baby, all I want for Christmas is you. So that song was originally written and performed by Mariah Carey. I didn't know that. She, she, she wrote the tune. That was, that was cool. For her album, Merry Christmas. It's one of the most requested tunes on holiday radio and has been covered by many other artists, from Shania Twain to My Chemical Romance. The song received critical and commercial praise. The New Yorker called it one of the few worthy modern additions to the holiday canon. The Daily Telegraph said that the song was the most popular and most played Christmas song of the decade in the United Kingdom. Carrie herself did a remix of it in 2000, and then again in 2009. In 2010, she re-recorded it and called it, All I Want for Christmas is You, Extra Festive. And then in 2011, she recorded it as a duet with Justin Bieber for his album, Under the Mistletoe. With the title, All I Want for Christmas is You, Super Festive! Exclamation point. So, we're dealing with something pretty special here. 
Seriously, I, I suppose there are worse attitudes to have at Christmas. The song obviously puts a priority on being with loved ones over the simple acquisition of material possessions. It makes playful mention of Christmas mythology like Santa Claus, but then delivers this warm and honest truth that authentic magic comes not from a store, but rather with human interaction. The song isn't overtly sexual or unnecessarily crude. It's just a simple song about a woman wanting to be with the man who she is apparently separated from at Christmas. Those feelings are indicative of romantic notions, of these romantic notions that are especially common this time of year. In fact, emotions in, seem, in general kind of seem to run, uh, run high this time of year. There's lots of things coming at us all at once. We have family obligations and cooking obligations and work obligations and church obligations and neighborhood obligations and ugly sweater obligations. Uh, we have dinner opportunities and charity opportunities and relatives in from out of town. It's also the first part of the winter where bad weather becomes a serious possibility. Some of us travel a lot during the holidays. Others stay home longer than we'd like. And the basic rhythm of life is disturbed this time of year. And of course, none of this is necessarily a bad thing. Most of it is great. But if you are here this morning and you're feeling a little bit stressed because of the holiday season, I feel your pain. We've created this Christmas culture, and our music often reflects that stress. I mean, have you ever noticed how sad a lot of Christmas music is? Uh, the blues kind of seems to fit right at home this time of year. I'll have a blue Christmas without you. I'll be so blue just thinking about you. Or bells will be ringing, the sad, sad news. Oh, what a Christmas to have the blues. My baby's gone, and I have no friends to wish me greetings. Once again, tell us what you really think, Don Henley. Well, before you say, oh, those are just the secular songs, trust in their hope in something other than God, consider how sad some of our sacred songs are this time of year. If not sad, may at least maybe mysterious. Oh, Holy Night, Silent Night, What Child Is This? These songs, they tap into these mysterious elements of the Incarnation using minor keys. And they use a language that makes you stop what you're doing and realize um, that something really special, something mysterious, something maybe with even an element of sadness is going on here. Christmas is a unique time of year that is filled with celebration, joy, and hope. Yet we're also often in this bleak midwinter, and it turns us inward. For Christians, it's a time of contemplation on the mystery of the Incarnation. God becoming man and coming down to be in the midst of his people, moving among them. However, he did not float down from heaven and, and morph into a man. He came through the normal human processes, the processes of pregnancy, of birth, of adolescence. And humanity is awestruck by this child in a manger. Michael Bird puts it this way. He says, the New Testament speaks to the full humanity of Christ. He comes as bone to our bone, flesh to our flesh. He speaks with a human voice. He grows up in a human family, eats, drinks, thirsts, hungers, grows weary, mourns, rejoices, and sheds tears 
It is majesty in frailty. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweep while shepherds watch are keeping? This? This is Christ the King? Whom shepherds guard and angels sing? Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. Jesus once said something to the effect that there is an intimate relationship between loving God and loving people. So when I hear about the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, I'm driven to my knees with wonder and awe because I don't deserve that kind of love. That's where my heart goes when I hear that sadness in the Christmas music, when I hear that fall on your knees in all holy night for that first time in the Christmas season. It makes sense then that in this season we would respond to the mystery of the great I am laying in a manger with longing for connection and love. God has shown his creation this unfathomable love. It's not surprising that our response to that love is our own realization that we need each other. All I want for Christmas is you. The movie clip from before, if you don't know, it's from the film Love Actually, which in our house has taken its place among other holiday favorites. The movie is about how all of these people who are slightly connected end up interacting with each other in known and unknown ways, in a way that paints this kind of many-faceted image of love. It's as if the filmmaker shows you a diamond, um, a diamond like called love, and then he keeps turning it to give you a slightly different angle throughout the movie. It's a neat way to tell a story because the person who seemed to be the main character in one scene is then a supporting character or even a background character in another. It's a lot like life. Movies like music tell us so much about the world that we live in. I think in many ways the films that come out of Hollywood, especially the ones revolving around Christmas, are are windows into our pain and our fear and our humanity. If we look at all the greats, at least the graces they're defined in the Miller household, we'll see a story about people who, with Christmas as the background, they're wrestling with these obligations and they're wrestling with these opportunities that we talked about before. They struggle like we do with the truth that for some reason the holidays seem to put a spotlight on our pain. No movie does this for me like It's a Wonderful Life. And I'll honestly say that um, uh, that story is about as precious to me as any other American tale. Um, I traded my man card in for a public spice latte a few weeks ago, but I don't mind telling you um, that there are a few movies out there that, that get me a little teary-eyed, um, and there are several scenes in this movie that get me choked up. One of them's the, the, the image on your bulletin. Um, but uh, the one that does more than anything else for me is the graveyard scene, where, where Clarence has just given George the gift of seeing what the world would be like if he wasn't born. And then as he kneels and he's crying at his brother's grave, Clarence says, strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. And when he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? 
You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? George Bailey was a man who for a moment lost sight of the tremendous gifts he had been given because they were clouded by his own pain, his own sufferings, his own mistakes. One of the aspects of the movie I love is that heaven isn't pictured as an accuser. Rather, the angels that help George see the error of his ways, they treat the situation like, one, they are in awe of George's integrity. And number two, it's not unprecedented for a man to lose his way. In the end, the bad guy never loses. Mr. Potter keeps that $8,000 in all of his power. But we see at the end this image of how a community naturally responds to the love that had been given to them. We can see this in our text for this morning as we move um, from our Romans series uh, to another chapter in Paul's life, in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident in this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Paul is writing, from uh, a prison that is most likely in Ephesus. In prison, food would not have normally been given by captors. They needed to rely on friends to feed them. So people from a different country raised money and sent out one of them, Epaphroditus, on a dangerous journey, all for Paul's benefit. This speaks volumes for how much love there was between them. If Paul was first brought the gospel, it was Paul that first brought the gospel um, to Greece through Philippi, which was a Roman colony populated by many of the descendants of soldiers of the civil war that broke out after the death of Julius Caesar. The Philippian church was the first church to be planted in Europe, and the gospel was expanding, and Paul knew this was something special. As we read the text, thanksgiving is a common feature in Paul's letters. He regularly begins his epistles with some sort of thanksgiving. Because of the gifts the Philippians had sent, Paul looked at the people of Philippi with this tremendous joy. So this is really more than just thanks. In fact, one commentator mentions that it's interesting that Paul doesn't thank God for the Philippians. He thanks God for the remembrance of them. So Paul thanks God for his remembrance. Paul thanks God for his remembrance of others. God is the source and the sustainer of their friendship, and this thanks is an occasion for joy. When was the last time we thanked God for sustaining a friendship? 
We're really good at lamenting when unpleasant elements of our past show up in the present and affect our future. But how often do we take stock of the gifts that we have received from God and our, other, and our fellow man and thank him for sustaining us? How often do we thank God for those joyful parts of our past that, quite frankly, could easily have been taken away? Does it give you comfort to know that there are things all around us that, that may seem normal now, but in the future, we're going to look back and we're going to tremble with this thanks. I've experienced this. I, I was thinking, in what ways did that kind of manifest itself for me? And uh, three, four people came um, to mind. One uh, was Mark and Kendall, who I met Mark and Kendall when I was uh, working at, at Grace uh, at a summer camp uh, like 14, 13 years ago. And at the time, it was this like, oh, well, here's this you know, nice girl. I was working with, with Kendall, and at the time, actually, I wasn't working with Mark. He came along later. But it, looking back and seeing that we developed this relationship, and then we started volunteering together, and, and then I invited them to this community when we started going here. And in time, now I can look back at this like 15-year relationship and say, Wow, God was really in his hand, had his hand in that from the whole, from the beginning. Uh, another case is um, my friend Matt Blama, who many of you have met. Um, I grew up with this guy who literally, I don't, I, I was too young to have remembered meeting him. Like he, I was probably, we were probably two years old when I met him. And it realized that I thank God that he is working with me now at the company that I work for. Um, and, like, this is somebody that God could have easily thought of another way to take him out of my life. But for some reason, this person who's basically been a brother to me has been around. God has sustained that friendship, and I don't think I thank God enough for him. More than anyone, I could say that about Amy, this girl that I didn't date in high school, but she was there, and I dated some of her friends. And she dated some of my friends. And eventually we worked our way around to each other. But this girl that I had this, uh, these feelings for, those early years in college, that God had his hand in that, and eventually that became marriage, and eventually that became our son. And I look back in the past and I say, you could have taken that away. You would have been completely in your rights to take that away, God, but you didn't. Thank you for that. In the text for today, that phrase, sharing of the gospel, or partnership you might have, or fellowship, uh, commentators tell us it's the Greek word koinonia. It's a very important concept in Pauline theology. It's this key to understanding Christian unity. It's about communion or about fellowship, but Partnership would actually be a better term. The word has a very practical, very even maybe financial meaning. Christians use it to describe the sharing of worship and prayer and mutual support and friendship. But in Paul's world, it actually it could have been meant more of a business partnership. Regardless, koinonia is an incorporation of all these aspects. The things Paul is really thanking God for is the gospel. Even though it is not 
of their own making. The gospel, it's their common enterprise. It's not just financial gifts Paul is referring to. It's sharing partnership, communion, fellowship around the gospel that drives them. You see, money, like sex and power, it's it's more than about the thing itself. When money leaves my pocket, it, it may be because of a specific need. In truth, that need is a manifestation of a greater reality. So, so I work so that I can provide for my family. One of the most important things I buy for, uh, with the money that I make is food for my family. Uh, but I don't just buy the food because we're hungry. I provide for my family because I love them. This sounds really simple, but, it broaden, uh, but broaden it to all the other ways that we spend money. Think about the other ways in which the Philippian church could have spent its money. Think about the other ways in which the Philippian, um, about Epaphroditus, could have spent his time and his energy. So maybe we take a look at how we spend our money and ask ourselves what this says about the people we care about. We can ask our spouses, for instance. When you see me express my sexuality, what does it say about how I care about you? If those of us in leadership can ask, when you see me using necessary elements of power, what does that say about the things that I care about? Think about the choices that you've made. Just this morning, for instance, and ask yourself, what do those choices have to say about the people you really care about? Friendship. Friendship was a thing in which Paul cared about, especially in regards to the Philippians. It's another extremely important principle here. I, I love um, Steve Fowle's commentary on this. He, apparently, uh, he says, in the Greco-Roman world, a key element to friendship would have been the giving and receiving of gifts. Uh, this would have been how one acquired um, the much more important commodity of honor. Honor framed the Greco-Roman relationships. I give you gifts, therefore I get honor. Christian forms of friendship, as we read about in the second chapter of Philippians, is all about imitating Christ's refusal to use his divine status for his own advantage and emptying himself on the behalf of others. The world's world's economy thinks about what I can gain from giving this gift in God's economy that's based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ— The giving and receiving of gifts is a way in which Christians participate in the analogy, uh, by analogy, in the life of God. The point here, Steve uh, Faust says, the point here is not that conventional Greco-Roman relationships were purely self-serving affairs. Rather, like all friendships, they were animated by assumptions about the world, humans' place in the world, and the proper end of human life. Paul's claims indicate ways in which life in Christ is animated by a different set of assumptions. See, it's non-competitive. It seeks to benefit others rather than yourself. The world's economy sees a lack of honor and responds by giving a gift so that I might receive honor again. God's economy is about being so overwhelmed by the magnitude of love and grace which has been bestowed on me, and I don't deserve that the best possible response for me to give is for me to give generously and sacrificially and joyfully. It's a different set of assumptions. 
And one of the things that I love about this passage, that different set of assumptions, is that Paul says that he's confident that the one who began a good work in you, he's going to carry it on to completion. Whatever God started here, he's going to finish. He's going to finish it on his terms, and that might look like trials and tribulations, and it may look like pain, it may look like suffering, it may look like going through a whole bunch of stuff that we'd rather not do, but make no mistake. God's going to finish what he started. I thank my God because of all my remembrances of you, New Hope Community Church. I always make each of my prayers for you with joy because of your participation with me in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident that the one who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion at the day of Christ. I hold you in my heart for all of you are fellow sharers with me in grace, both in the day-to-day friendships that we have and for the greater cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God is my witness of how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. In 2005, we may have challenging choices to make as individuals, as families, as a church. I pray that those choices we make in this fellowship will reflect the things that we care about the most, loving God and loving each other. Still, those practical choices need to be made, and I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and all moral understanding so that you may be able to discern and determine what is best in order that you might be people of sincerity and integrity for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let me pray for you. Thanks, good Father, for your faithfulness to our community. We thank you for this incredible promise that you will finish what you started. We thank that we can put our trust in you, and we can trust you with our past. We can trust you with our present, and we can trust you with our future. We thank you that you know where this ship is headed, and therefore we put our trust in you. Make us a people that you want us to be. Not through our own efforts, but by your grace, help us to respond to you in the ways that you would have us respond. The ways that are going to build for your kingdom on earth as is in heaven the ways that are going to bring your kingdom here for eternity. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.